0: This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. All right, guys, I'm bringing up a cup of water, and you can probably hear it in my voice, but I'm at the tail end of a cold, so bear with me. Um, I'm going to try and get my voice through this. It took my voice this week, so I'm going to try and get through um, this sermon. We'll see if it goes bad, Ronnie? You're finishing it up. All right. So, uh, guys, my name is Jeff Heiser. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. We're so glad to have all you guys. That was Zach Lutz. He has just joined our staff. We are so glad to have you, Zach. Thank you for leading us in worship. Um, If you've been with us the past couple months, um, we have been studying the book of 1 John, and this week is our final sermon. So we're going to be at the end of 1 John chapter 5. 1 John was written by the apostle John towards the end of his life. Um, he writes this letter to a group of churches around in, in modern-day Turkey, where he's living at that point, to encourage them and strengthen their faith. They had experienced division, confusion within their churches. And, um, and he wants to encourage them that the, the gospel remains true. And it remains true in the midst of all this division and confusion. And my hope is today, as we wrap up this book that some of the same themes that we've been studying will come out and we will again hear them and they will get, continue to work their way down into our hearts and in our lives. There's this really interesting story in the book of Acts, chapter 14. Barnabas and the apostle Paul have come to the city of Lystra. They're missionaries. They're traveling throughout um, uh, to the area of Turkey and Greece. And so they come to the city of Lystra And there's this crippled man there that Paul miraculously heals. And, of course, all the people are just astounded by this. And they immediately think that Paul and Barnabas must be Zeus and Hermes, the Greek gods and they're all like, "Wow, you know, everything's, chaos is erupting, and they actually have a temple to Zeus in Lystra, and the priest of Zeus, you know, you can almost, he like runs out, he sees the apostles, you can see him like running to a corral where he grabs the, you know, a cow and starts dragging it over to sacrifice this cow to Paul and Barnabas. And, of course, Paul is distraught, and he stops him, and he has this beautiful moment to share the gospel and everything. It's great. But, man, I just, like, I couldn't stop thinking about that poor priest. Like, he, you know, he, he spends his entire life, he is the priest of Zeus. Right? He spends his whole life like, caring for, um, you know, sacrificing to, helping worship this, this God. Right? He sees the idol every day. He probably even lives in the temple and eats the temple food. And yet when it comes down to it, he doesn't know his God well enough to know that Barnabas is not Zeus. Right? He, like he, he spent his whole life, his whole life was wrapped around Zeus. And yet he didn't even know him well enough to recognize that Barnabas was not Zeus. Now, I think about this priest, and I think about my own relationship to God. And I, if you are anything like me, you may be worried that at times, maybe, if it, when it came down to it, you maybe couldn't even recognize God. Like, how in the world, how do we know that we actually know God? How do we know how can I know that I actually know God? I was listening to this podcast a couple weeks ago. A pastor in there, he, um, he mentioned that in the, in the Western church, there are lots of um, self-professed Christians that don't read their Bibles. No, lots of us don't read our Bibles. But the reason that many of these uh, don't read their Bibles is because to reading their Bibles would actually confront their faith too strongly. That is, that the God that they worship is so disconnected from the God of the Bible that to read the Bible would actually threaten their faith. Now, we can probably say that if it came down to it, they wouldn't recognize their God, the God that they claim to worship and serve. Now, if that's not you, that's, that's actually excellent. I'm really happy. I hope that that's not me. But here's the problem: is that in the Bible, when it talks about knowing, it's something much more, much deeper than just recognizing. It's something much more profound. My brother, my family's from South Carolina, but my brother lives in Colorado, and he's been there about a year. And he moved there for a girl, and um, and you know, he 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 could have just like uh, you know he could have just sat there with her picture, and he could have just like studied her picture. You know, he could have, like, scanned through her Instagram account, like, gotten to, you know, got so he could recognize her in good light and bad light, you know. And, and then and, and he could say, yeah, I, like, yeah, I know her. But, like, we all know. That's not, he wouldn't know her. He would recognize her, but he certainly wouldn't know her. No, he, like, had to move halfway across the country so that he could get to know her. He, he didn't want to recognize her. He wanted a relationship with her. Right? There's a knowing that is much deeper than recognition. And that's what he was after. And I'm happy to um, report that they're getting married in May. So that's great. It's worked out. Uh, But in the Bible, when we talk about knowing God, it is something much deeper than recognition. Right? It is to experience, to actually have seen and known and lived with God, to, to have experienced him. And so when we ask that question, how do I know that I know God? We're not asking, can you recognize him? That's not enough. We're asking, how do I know that I have experienced a relationship with him? How do I know? And that question is a whole lot deeper, a whole lot harder to answer, and in fact, a whole lot scarier to answer if you're anything like me. But I think that if we lean in, I think that um, truly experiencing God will give us a whole lot more comfort than than just purely being able to recognize him, a whole lot more comfort in this life and that which is to come. That's what we are after. Now, what does this have to do with 1 John chapter 5? The churches that John is writing to, right, they're in the midst of chaos. Everything is falling apart around them. They're experiencing division. People are saying different things about who Jesus is, what Jesus was, and they're asking the question, how in the world do I know that the God that I'm following, the gospel that I claim to profess, is actually the true gospel? Because these other people are saying other things. How do I know that I am on the, the you know, the, the straight and narrow way? How do I know that I know God? And the Apostle John leans in because he wants to assure them. He wants to give them comfort and assurance and certainty that, the, that God, Christ, who they serve, is the true God. Not an idol, right? He's not something, a figment of their imagination. He's not something that they dreamed up or made up. He is the one true God. And that's what we're after today. That's the encouragement we want for ourselves today. Okay, Let's turn to our passage. If you're willing and able, please stand with me out of reverence for God's word. Um, This is 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 13 through 21, the end of the chapter there. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us and whatever we ask. We know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and the God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is, a sin, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will abide forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. How do I know that I know God? That's the question we're asking today. And the Apostle John offers three answers to that. We know God through faith. We know God through prayer. And finally, we know God through identity and we'll kind of unpack each of those as we go. So first of all, we know God through faith. I will always argue that St. Louis, Missouri is a hidden gem of a city. I lived there in seminary and I love it. I totally unexpected, but I love St. Louis, Missouri. And one of the reasons is they have this art museum that is like fantastic and it's completely free. And um, in that art museum, they have a big room, and there's a little bench, like you'll see in art museums sometimes, and in front of that bench is this wall-sized Monet painting of, like, lilies and water, and it's beautiful. And Monet was a French Impressionist painter, right? Lived in the second half of the 19th century, early 20th century. You've probably seen his paintings. If you're up really, really close, they look kind of like splotches of color, but then you back away, and it reveals this beautiful scene of you know, a lake or often lilies, these sorts of things. Well, the impressionists of which Monet is kind of the, he's kind of the peak, right? Um, they, had a, they were after, after a very specific effect in their painting, the, the, the style that they used. Um, it was around that time that um, they, were, they were first developing surgeries that could remove cataracts from people's eyes. And so you had people that for the first time, had, they'd been blind and for the first time they could see, but what was interesting is that when they opened their eyes for the first time after this, or got the bandages removed after a um, after this surgery, what they would see would be splotches of color. They couldn't actually decipher what it was they were seeing because they had no interpretation for the colors that were confronting them. And so, although they could see, they Technically, they couldn't actually discern anything. They couldn't actually see until an interpretation of what was hitting their, the colors that were hitting their eyes um, was like what was going on. And, and Monet, he actually would say that he wished that he could be born blind so that he could have experienced the world, like the colors of the world without interpretation. And that's what Impressionists were after. They wanted to, to get past the interpretation and just create this uninterpreted colors, right? And that's why the spot is of color, but you step back, you see something. Well, that's experience of the blind man seeing his, see, like receiving his sight for the first time, which of course we don't think much of now, but then was blowing people's minds with this new um, surgery. That interpretation is something of the way that faith works, right, in the way that interpre- they needed an interpretation to be able to see, right? They needed to be able to interpret what, they were, what was hitting their eyes to be able to actually see anything. In the same way, John says that we need faith in order to be able to know God. Faith always precedes knowing. Knowing never precedes faith, If you'll look with me down at verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Look closely. It says, you who believe, right? Belief is a precondition of knowing that you have eternal life, right? Faith precedes knowing. But actually, it gets a little bit more interesting as you know, uh, the Apostle John, he didn't write just 1 John. He wrote Second and Third John. He wrote Revelation. And he also wrote, of course, the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, Jesus says something that's very interesting that's actually going to help us interpret this verse. John, in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. This is right before he's crucified and arrested and crucified. He's praying to the Father for his disciples. And he says, this is eternal life. Okay, so what's John talking about when he says eternal life? Jesus is going to tell us, this is eternal life, that they know you, that's the Father, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So what is, eternal, what, what is eternal life that John is talking about? He's talking about, it's almost shorthand for the fullness of this relationship with God. It is the, the wholeness of knowing God in an experiential, intimate, personal, communing with God way. Eternal life is to know God. So what John is saying is that those who believe in the name of son, the Son of God Know that through faith, they have access to a deep, intimate relationship with God, both in this life and that which is to come. Eternal life is defined. It, the single defining characteristic of eternal life is to know God, is knowing God for eternity. Right? Experiencing, communing Him into, with Him, intimate relationship, trust for eternity. Faith is never, we say this, A good bit up here. Faith is not an end. It is a means, and the end is to know God. Faith is a means so that we can know God, right? It is the means by which the spiritually blind are made to see. It is the means by which we are given an interpretation for who God is so that we can know Him and experience Him and His Son, Jesus Christ. So how do I know that I know God? Well, the absolutely first question you have to ask, is do I have faith? Am I leveraging my whole life on who he is and what he has done? Biblical faith is not like a way to paper over things that we don't understand. Biblical faith is surrendering to God, giving ourselves to him and to his purposes with full confidence based on the work of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. Any knowledge of God must absolutely start with faith, but faith is not is not it's it's kind of a starting point, right? It is a it is it is the first it is the open door by which we begin to know God. But remember that knowing God is not like a cognitive intellectual activity necessarily solely. It's also deeply experiential. An experiential knowing is a process, a journey. It takes time. As we know, for many friendships we have, it takes time. And that's where we come to our second point, that we know that we know God through prayer. J.I. Packer, um, professor, Christian author, pastor, he says this, that people who know their God are before anything else people who pray people who know their God, are before anything else, people who pray. And in verses 14 through 17, John dives into prayer. I was reading an article this past week, and uh, the author, Christian thinker named Alan Noble, he mentioned that we live in a society that's governed by technique so um, we have hundreds of little techniques that, that help us to overcome every little challenge that we face in life, right? We have um, apps that help us have, you know, the best workouts, and we read books that help us, you know, get our toddlers to eat vegetables and, uh, you know, and ha- get, you know, retire early and get rich quick and all uh, have great sex life. So we, like, we have techniques for everything, happiness, contentment, you name it. There is a self-help book. There is an app. There is a technique for everything in life. It's the world we live in. And there's, this been, there's been this trend the last few years called minimalism. I don't know if you guys have heard of this, but there's, um, there's a couple of guys named Joshua and Ryan, and about 10 years ago, they were about like 30 at that time, they'd kind of gotten dissatisfied with their corporate life, and they decided to leave it all and become minimalists. And um, they've, they started this blog that's been read by 20 million people, Like, that's 20 million people who wonder if minimalism might be the technique for them, you know, might give them the full, the better life. And listen to what they say. This is how they describe minimalism. Minimalism is a tool, think technique, minimalism is a tool that can assist you in finding freedom. Freedom from fear, freedom from worry, freedom from overwhelm, freedom from guilt, real freedom. By incorporating minimalism into our lives, we've finally been able to find lasting happiness. And that's what we're all looking for, isn't it? Right? Minimalism. It's a technique for the better life. But listen, in this world of techniques, sometimes we can turn and make God a technique. Or in prayer, the technique by which we harvest the technique of God. That give, who will give us a better life, who will make us happy, more full, all these things. So this is what I'm going to... Okay, we're going to do a test really quick. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read exactly what these guys put on their website. But instead of saying minimalism, I'm going to say God. Okay? So God is a tool that can assist you in finding freedom. Freedom from fear, freedom from worry, freedom from overwhelm, freedom from guilt, real freedom. God By incorporating God into our lives, we've finally been able to find lasting happiness. And that's what we're all after, isn't it? Is God a technique by which you have tried to harness the better life? Is that what he is for you? We need to be really, like, cutthroat with ourselves. This is not what we want. We don't want God to be a tool. He is God. He is a real person. And is prayer a means by which we can harness that technique? Do we think of prayer as a technique for getting a better life? That's not what John is after for his readers or after for us. Look at verse 14 with me. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Listen, the prayer of faith is a prayer for God's will, not my will, right? It is not like a ther- ther- uh, therapy technique. It is not like a tool by which we like, get God to give us what we want to make life better or something. Prayer is the means by which we change The means by which we bring our wills in line with God's, right? and, And that is a change that comes as we grow to know God. And prayer is the primary means by which God, one of the primary means by which God has given us an opportunity to get to know him, to spend time with him. Is your line in will with God's will? That's a question we all need to ask ourselves. You know, maybe... Um, You used to be pretty greedy and selfish with your money, Um, but you're starting to find yourself enjoying a little bit of spending a little bit more so you can be generous in hospitality, spending a little bit more on groceries so you can bring people into your home. Like, are you starting to find your desires in line with God's desires? That is is crucially important, because as we know God, as we learn to know God, we will learn to be able to say things like, Heavenly Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not mine. Are we finding God's will, God's desire, shaping our desires Okay, let's look at verses 15 through 17. You know how sometimes at Marshall's they like you can get you know the the Bible verses like painted in cursive that you hang on your wall. You know what I'm talking about? Well, sometimes those Bible verses are taken completely out of context, and it can really change the meaning in like probably not great way. Well, these um, these this verse right here, verse 15, could really be taken out of context and really used misused. And we want to be really careful that we don't do that. Because you could read this and just say, oh, great, God will give us whatever we ask. Easy, perfect, I'm good, we just got to ask the right way and it'll all be good. No, 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 because remember the context is us subordinating our will to God's. And so what he's after is saying is that in prayer, God hears us. Okay, that's the first call. God hears us, and then he will act according to his wisdom and love for us. That is to say that even when God says no, even when God says no, the fact that he hears us is, signifies his deep re, uh, relationship and connectedness and fellowship with us. The fact of God hearing us Right signifies the deep relationship that we have with Him. So you think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and He, and he says, "Lord, take this cup from me, but not Your will be done, but m- not My will be done, but Yours." And what is he, what happens in that moment? He experiences deep fellowship with God. It says that God sent an angel to strengthen Him. So even when God was saying no. God was hearing him, listening, entering, moving towards him into a relationship with him. And that's what John is after here for, to encourage us that, like, God is not a vending machine. He is a person who hears us, and his every response is a, signified as a result of his relationship with us, even when he says no. You see, our God wants... His yes is not the only means by which he assures us that he he knows us and we know him. His yes is not the only way. And he wants a deep, like sweet, joyful intimacy with him. And he just says, talk to me. Spend time with me. Be with me. And you will see me. You will know me even when I say no. If you feel an emptiness in your relationship with God, if you wonder if maybe... You don't know who he is. Pray. 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 Listen, I mean, what would it look like for you to get up 15 minutes early, read one psalm, and pray for 10 minutes? It would deepen. You would know your father better. Pray to him. Spend time with him. People who know their God are before anything else people who pray. We must be spending time with our father in prayer. Okay, verses 16 and 17. If you have a Catholic background, you're probably looking at these and thinking about mortal sins, venial sins, and ranking sins, different levels, different levels of hell, all this stuff. And I just want to simplify things for you really quick. What John is saying is that there is sin that will just eat you up. It will eat you alive. But as as we've been learning throughout this whole epistle, that if we truly know God... Then God always moves to us, towards us in love. There is always restoration. There is always forgiveness by the Son, uh, by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. We, there, for those who truly know God, there is not a sin that leads to death. That is not a sin that we will commit because of what Christ has done. Right? There. there we need to be careful, but we can also take encouragement that ultimately our certainty is based on Christ's blood, not on what. not on what sins we're doing and not doing, okay? Okay, here's our third point. We know God through faith. We know God through prayer. We know that we know God through our identity. One of the first things that Cecilia learned about my family is how strong my family culture is. Like, I didn't know this, but apparently it's extremely strong. But of course I didn't know because when you're in it, Like you have no idea, but I mean, you you can ask her. There's 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 a ton of things that only my family does and says. And just we were actually in South Carolina uh, last month, and like all the in-laws were just like laughing at how many things we do, like how strong our family culture is. And you know, yeah, honestly, I, I. Like, I'm so blind that I, like, I, I, like, literally don't know that I'm doing these things. But it makes sense. Like, of course we have, like, a a strong family culture because it's where I grew up. It's what I know. It's who I am. My dad would say things like, hey, listen, hyzers don't do those sorts of things. Right? Being a hyzer is an identity for me. It's not something I do. It's who I am. Right? I, I don't, like, it's not something I do. It's who I am. And listen, our kids are entering a world in which unbelief is so plausible. It is so plausible to not believe in Jesus. It is so plausible. And, um, and they're going to be told that their faith is something that they do. It's not who they are. And um, it's a personal choice that can be, you know, chosen or unchosen at will. And, and, and it can't be an identity because if it's an identity... If it's, if it's an identity, you can't leave it at home, right? I can't leave being a hyzer at home. I, it, it, it colors everything I do, everything I say. It is part of who I am. It's not something I do. Well, look with me at verse 18 of our passage here. Do you see that language, born of God? That's identity language. And what John is saying is that in Christ, you have been born of God, you have a new family, a spiritual family, um, and it shapes your identity. God is our Father. We are His children. That is our family. And of course, it shapes our identity. And as, as, as is always the case, our identity shapes how we act. We cannot leave it at home. If you find your identity in your wealth, you're going to buy a big, expensive car so people know that you're wealthy. Right? If you find identity in your work, you're going to give yourself to your work and maybe in an unhealthy way, right? valuing too much the praise of your co-workers, these sorts of things. And when you know God, when you're his child, and that becomes your identity, of course it shapes the way you act. You'll notice in verses 18 through 21, you kind of have three contrasting statements Um, which are all different angles of kind of the same thing. He says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. So you have those born of God and those who keep on sinning. Uh, Verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So you have those who are of God, those in the power of the evil one. And then in uh, 20 and 21, you have, uh, we are in him who is true, Jesus Christ. Then 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Those are, those are, um, Like those who are in God and those who are given to idols, right? You see that contrast those who are worshiping Christ, those who are worshiping idols. What John is saying is that those who know God begin to live out of their identity as children of God. They are not the same as they were before. They do not pursue the same things. They do not say, do the same things. And it's not, something that, it's not something new or groundbreaking or crazy. It's what all humans do. We live out of our identities. We live out of the, way, the places that we find our value. And so for self-assessing, like how do I know that I know God? We need to ask ourselves, like how, are we actually acting out of this new identity that we have? Are we acting out of it? Are we acting like we know God? It's not that we'll ever stop sinning completely. John makes that very clear throughout the rest of, in um, chapter 2, chapter 1 as well. He makes that very clear. It's not like, like Christians don't sin. It's not that. But it's that as we move into our identity as sons and daughters of God, he begins to change the way that we act. We begin to live like children of the king. We begin to live out of our identity. Listen, we have a father You have a Father who loves you. That is who you are. And to know Him means to move into that, move towards Him, into that new identity that He has given you. He is our Father. Like, we get to know Him. It's a beautiful gift. All right. Um, How do I know that I know God? It's not enough just to recognize him. You don't want to just recognize him. That's not enough. That is not enough. We, we, need, we, we need to know him, to commune with him, to have a relationship with him, to experience him. And, and we start with faith, right? We start with faith. That's the foundation of any knowledge of God is our faith in Christ. And then we seek him in prayer and and find our will conforming to his will, our desires to his desires, and then we begin to lean into this new identity that we have a father who loves us, and we are his precious, beloved children. And we begin to live like the family, right? We begin to live, to be, not just, our, 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 our uh, faith is not just something we do, it's who we are. But listen, what I don't want you to hear here and I don't think John does either, is that you just need to get on God's level. This is not like, hey, if you're cool enough, you can sit at God's lunch table. That's not what's going on in this passage at all. You see, God doesn't just want us to know. This is is not just about what we want, what we are going to do. This is about what God wants. God wants you to know him, and when God wants something, it's not just like a wish out there in, you know, in, in the sky that he hopes happens. No, when God wants something to happen, it happens. He will make it happen, whatever it takes. So look again with me at verse 20. He says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. What has God done? He has come so that we may know him. God, John is closing his whole epistle, the whole thing. And what he wants them to hear, the last thing that he wants them to hear, is that God himself wants you to know him. God, The almighty God wants a relationship with you. He wants you to experience him, to know him, to find joy in his love. And he made it, makes it possible through his son, Jesus Christ. Right? He doesn't want them to sit around paralyzed with self-doubt about the sincerity of their prayers or faith or whatever. No, he, he wants to move confidently toward him because they know Jesus Christ is proof that God will do whatever it takes, that he wants you to know him Because he loves you. And John says that Jesus is the true God in the eternal life. That's how he closes it. One of the clearest statements of Christ's divinity in all of Scripture. Listen, the the certainty that we're all searching for, the fullness of relationship with God, the the sense of confidence in our salvation, that, that we know God, that he knows us, that he loves us, that he has saved us, that certainty can only be found in Jesus Christ. He lived, he died, he rose again, and he sits at the right hand of God so that we may know him. And if there's only one thing that you take away from this whole sermon series, if you walk away from the past three months with one thing, I'm sure Ronnie will agree with me. We want you to know that your heavenly father loves you. And he sent his son so that you can know him. Amen.